0: Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Thanks so much for joining us here on Thursdays at the Commonwealth Club, where we tape the show here at this beautiful space, along with my co-host, John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club.
1: Oh, it's great having you here, Michelle.
0: And today we have a rainbow off to the side, but it's perfect. (laughs) It's perfect for this. Wow, our guest today. I mean, it's been a a while since um, wanting to talk to her about a lot of things. It's been a crazy few years since the last time we did our interview, and uh, she has mounted some incredible um, efforts in her campaign. She has served us very well. Uh, in San Francisco, uh, serving two successful terms as supervisor of District Six. Let's welcome Jane Kent. So, what I really meant, you know, about that wanting to talk to you for a lot—there yeah, was a lot going on. I mean, uh, since the last time we did the interview, you ran for state senator, you ran for mayor, still while maintaining your role as supervisor of District Six, and uh, just now fresh. Is the word retiring, is it?
2: Is that what it is? I don't think it's... I would say that I'm taking a pause, Yeah, um, a short pause <laughs> um, in the work, and, you know, hoping that I can spend a little bit of this time reflecting on, actually, the last 12 years in public office, yep. including the Board of Education. Right, right. Well, before we dive into
0: it all, I mean, it, it's tradition here on the show to kind of Find a warmer way before we start talking about the politics. And the warm way here on the show is really a, a, a coming out, sharing a coming out story. And, and uh, so you know, this morning I had to check myself because I'm going to ask Jane um, a coming out story. Oh, wait, she's an ally. I almost forgot because you've been such an incredible voice and have been inclusive and been a strong supporter of the LGBTQ community. But it's up to you, however you... However, you yeah yeah understand that question, and I think it's fun to ask allies their coming out stories.
2: <laughs> um, well, first of all, I just do want to thank um, folks for coming out today. Um, it's great to see so many familiar faces, and now I know who my friends are. <laughs> so thank you for being here and joining us. Uh, coming out story, uh, I I can think of a few. Um, But the one story that I share a lot, and I share this um, in particular with young people in schools, is that I actually, um, growing up, um, never viewed myself as a leader. I was incredibly shy, very socially awkward, um, had no concept of fashion trends, very (laughs) uncool in my school, and, um, you know, for a number of reasons, felt fairly invisible, um, in the classroom. In fact, the feedback I often got from my teachers was that I didn't participate enough in, in the classroom discussions. Um, but for whatever reason, um, growing up, um, I was very moved by the things that I saw around me, whether it was inequity or homelessness, race, gender, class. And so I, for, for those of, actually, in this room, people will remember um, the 1992 LA riots um, um, post the Rodney King verdict, And as a Korean American, that was a really momentous, uh, uh, you know, national um, incident because it included Asian Americans because growing up, race conversations have largely been black and white and now more so black, brown and white. But Asian-Americans are largely left out of that conversation. Um, but here we had um, a conviction, uh, or actually no conviction, of white four police officers that were actually caught then on VHS camcorder, so not on your phone, <laughs> um, from someone's balcony um, beating an African-American man. And they are all acquitted. And the immense shock and disappointment and anger of actually having it caught and still not getting convicted. And in L.A. at the time, um, it impacted a lot of um, Korean-American business owners and um, Koreatown. And so we actually had an assembly in our school that day. It was only supposed to be about 10 minutes. And a couple of my classmates had come to speak about the impact of police brutality in their lives and what it meant to them. And um, the assembly went from 15 minutes and ended up going up over an hour. And finally, near the end, I got up the courage to raise my hand and speak for the very first time um, as a freshman in high school. And I still remember that moment being incredibly scared because I'd never spoken in public before. Um, And it was my first time that I wanted to share to my classmates my experiences as a young Asian American and what that meant in this country. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. <clears throat> John, I'll well, let you it, I'll let yeah, you lead. A, yeah. That's a
1: great jumping off point to yeah. a lot of things, but you were shy. You did go into politics, which is when I was young, I remember people would say, "Oh, you are either going to do this or you're going to be in politics." I realized just watching politics, how vicious it can get. Mm-hmm. And I realized my skin is way too thin to get into it. You've had to put up with a lot of that. I mean, did you, as Hillary Clinton says, he just grew a really thick skin or how do you deal with it when someone makes an attack on you?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I have a good answer to that question. What I will say is that, um, you know, even later as a young person, I never ran for, you know, student council, any type of office, and I actually never anticipated that I would go into this line of work. I always knew I wanted to do public service, um, but I didn't think that I would use elected office as a vehicle to make change. Um, But when I first ran in 2004, I, I really jumped in, fairly naively into politics. I didn't prep for it. I didn't go to Democratic club meetings and kind of work my way up. Um, I knew very little about the process um, besides being an organizer that had gone door knocking in many, many campaigns. And actually, I made the decision in who became later my chief of staff, Ivy Lee's kitchen, literally kitchen cabinet, (laughs) made that decision to run for the Board of Education. Um, but I always tell people now that I'm really glad that I kind of jumped in feet first, because if I had really understood what the process would be like, I would have never done it. <laughs> I cried almost every single day on my first campaign. Um, it was both miserable and exhilarating. It's both at the same time. And what I've learned in my 12 years in office is kind of living in this dichotomy, which is that I um, spent many days um, miserable. <laughs> but I loved what I was doing every single day at the same time. And I knew that our work um, could and was making a difference in the community. And that's ultimately what kept me going um, in this world.
1: Sorry, I, I if yeah. you had not won that first race, do you think you would have been up? for? Doing I didn't it win. Oh, you didn't. I'm sorry. I lost
2: my first race. Okay. Um, I oh. lost my first race for school board. And I came back again. And I ran two years later. And we came in first place citywide out of wow. 15 candidates. If at first you don't succeed, dust yourself off and try again.
0: Um, I, I've Aaliyah's song has stuck with me since eighth grade. So um, I'm going to follow off what John was talking about as far as like the attacks. And I mean, a, a lot of what I wanted to talk to you about was the media. And, mm-hmm. you know, you did something that was so courageous in uh, <clears throat> actually, you know, calling out a, a, a journalist or a reporter, you know, who uh, wrote an article really digging into your past. This is you've gone through very contentious two campaigns. I want to say this first. I mean, as as a Asian American woman, a woman, a progressive uh, standing on progressive issues um, and running in a town like San Francisco during this political climate and what that means for even folks like myself, putting yourself out there, not once, but like twice in in really short amount of time, all of everything you should expect, like the, the really bad. And when there's the really bad, it means people really see that you're someone to be afraid of. And for a young female voter like myself, that's huge. Like now I know, like the game is they got to be afraid of you. And then. You know um and and the and the only way they show you that they're afraid of you is if they start talking a lot of bad crap so before you know having you on the show is just doing a quick reading is like okay i'm going to count how many times in five minutes how many articles who one called you a liar uh or two um said that you know the you, you know this whole idea of just not good enough like. Great on the uh, the platform, but not enough policies to support that. Mm-hmm. And so, my my question behind all of that is, how do you ignore all of that and continue on? Because um, I think that when you start looking at the impacts from the last two terms, and then what you've done as far as uh, serving for board of education, and even what you brought to the table running the, for those two campaigns on a very progressive agenda, you have a
2: lot to celebrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've done six campaigns in the last 14 years, which is pretty extraordinary. And I really have never gotten a break except for my reelection campaign for the board of supervisors. So thank you. (laughs) Uh, and, and so we've always run really challenging battles where, um, you know, I was the underdog candidate in the race. Um, a couple of things that I'll say, and I think we're talking a lot more about it now. Um, post, uh, Uh, the Clinton-Trump election, which is how women leaders are treated um, in the media. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is talking a lot about it. Ilhan Omar is talking a lot about it. And it's actually one of the things that I have to say that has been incredibly refreshing for me the last month is reading the news and having so many headlines with women in it. It's really extraordinary. I think the other night I was reading the New York Times and I read five articles in a row about women leaders, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Nancy Pelosi. um, And that's extraordinary. And we're not even blinking an eye about the fact that there are six serious female candidates for president um, in the 2020 election. And so even though we didn't win the White House, um, we have broken a glass ceiling. Mm -hmm. um, And I think that's extraordinary. Um, I talked a lot about dichotomies in politics and something I've been thinking a lot about um, post the 12 years was this other dichotomy that I lived in every single day, um, which was that my race and gender was used against me on almost a daily basis, um, sometimes in incredibly crushing and demoralizing and even humiliating ways. But at the same time, I still had power vested in me by the charter of the city and county of San Francisco, a power that had historically been limited to wealthy white men for most of our country's history. And I see the struggle a lot, actually, with young people in politics, women, people of color, LGBTQ, um, believing in the power that they have once that they're elected and embracing it. And I think that was the challenge that I am very proud of having taken on, um, which is, this is the third dichotomy I'll mention, um, someone had asked me, "What What did you learn in your 12 years in office?" And I responded very quickly. I learned how to be fearless, um, and that was actually an extraordinary lesson for me. And it took many years um, to kind of embrace fearlessness. But as I thought about my answer more, I realized that my answer wasn't that honest, because I was actually scared all the time. (laughs) Like every single day in the job, I was scared. And so it's actually more that I learned how to be both scared and fearless at the same time. Um, And so that's kind of, you know, I, I think that's a conversation that we need to have more of, because as we especially in social media, we talk so much more about race and gender and sexuality. And I think that's a positive conversation, but we have to realize that it's more complicated now um, because we are thankfully electing more people into office and they do have power. Right. And so, you know, learning how to have a conversation about um, power and race and gender, I think is going to be more important over the next couple of years.
1: So, you said you're kind of taking a pause before whatever you, you do next. And we know you're going to do something next. What are the issues that I guess you're still going to be following? And, and you know, I saw you taking stands on, on Twitter and things like that. So you're, you're still very much involved. What are the issues that you think are important for you to be involved in that you can still do something and with whatever you, you choose to do? Mm-hmm. If that's not as, if that's not too vague of a question.
2: Yeah. Well, I think the, the, Big overarching um, issue that's facing our country is the growing um, inequity, um, both income and wealth inequity in our country, and, and that's something that's been happening over the last forty years. But we really have to address it. Um, policymakers have to get into the room and think about what's happening. Uh, and I talk about this all the time. But you know, in the nineteen seventies, uh, American middle class outnumbered those in the upper income bracket. You know those that make below fifty thousand and above one hundred and fifty thousand, and San Francisco kind of mirrors that. You know the middle class used to make up close to fifty percent of San Francisco's population in nineteen ninety. Over the next twenty five years, it declined to closer to thirty percent. Wow. And and now in this country, um, upper and low income Americans outnumber those in the middle class forty years later, and so um, policy plays a very important role in how we distribute wealth um, in this country. And I'm glad that that conversation is happening on the national level. And again, you know, we talk about not winning, right? And I've also not won many times um, in in the typical fashion. But uh, we have to think about the agenda continuing to move forward. So even though Bernie Sanders didn't win in 2016, now all the major candidates are talking about Medicare for all and are talking about taxing the wealthiest Americans. Um, Hillary Clinton didn't win in 2016, and we have six serious women candidates running um, for president uh, in 2020. So you know, how do we keep that agenda um, and movement continuing? And I think the inequity piece is a big part of it. And um, in our office, and by the way, I hired women of color um, on my legislative team, one of whom here is today, Ivy Lee, who's our newest member of the College Board of Trustees. Um, uh, we we really wanted to take that issue on and one of the reasons why we took on community college um, was because education has historically always been a very expensive investment that this country has made um, in our citizens and if you look historically in the 20th century um, when this country decided to invest in a free and universal K-12 education system, it'd be unheard of for us to make a an expensive decision like that today, right? Um, The middle class grew uh, during that time. It's not the only reason why the middle class grew, but it was one of the factors of what grew a middle class in this country. And in the mid-20th century, a high school diploma used to be enough to get a middle class job. Now we know that's no longer the case. And statistics are showing that by 2020, 70% of all U.S. jobs will require some type of post-secondary degree, training certificate. And that is why... um, our initiative to make community college free and universal, by the way, even if you are wealthy, that community college is free, was so important to us because we felt like this was a basic right that we should be offering to all of our citizens because we know a high school diploma is no longer enough. So tackling that issue will continue to be important to me. Investing in public education, Um, as you all know, housing and transportation was a big part of my platform and what I continue to be very interested in investing in particularly in this region um, will be issues that I would like to continue to work on.
0: Yeah. Housing and that is something that we're going to bring up. And I think that that's a whole new different, I mean, lots of hours that was spent here at the Commonwealth club with various people in the city and uh, in talking about that, but um, yeah, let's, let's go there. And I know that, you know, celebrating city college, free city college, we'll always remember Jane mm-hmm. for free city college. Uh, A lot of us who've lived in the city at least in the last um, five years or so. Uh, But housing, it's complex as it is already. Everybody has a lot of ideas of how to address housing. And people, those ideas don't necessarily translate into solutions. Um, For you, you know, what was important was... Not not necessarily the question to, to build or not to build, but you had a strategy in at least if we're building that a certain percentage of mm-hmm. that housing is mm-hmm. set aside for, um, you know, affordable housing, mm. which, you know, logically speaking, I mean, that makes sense. If there's a lot more people coming to live in San Francisco, we have to build more housing to accommodate that um, at the same time, not just accommodate the incomes that can, you know, afford the new housing, the develop, developmental projects, uh, that that's one one solution. I wouldn't say that's the end-all, be-all, but I'd love to hear from you and people who've criticized that strategy because uh, the overall theme here in having this conversation with you is through the losses and the wins, we've actually, you know, are winning. We're making an impact in our community
2: somehow, and people sometimes need to take, you know, 10 steps back to see that. Mm-hmm. So... You know, over my time in office, I've actually, despite I think um, so many of the things that you do see that are wrong in government and so many things that, um, you know, make you kind of lose faith in the institution, despite all the things that I would see, I actually still came out believing in government even more. Um, And housing is actually a component of that. Um, There was a time in this country that we used to be. Um, that we used to invest in housing. We used to be in the business of building housing. And when you look um, statistically, again, between 1940 and 1980, when this country did invest in housing, um, homelessness wasn't a phenomenon in major urban cities. In fact, you know, homelessness really began to emerge as a phenomenon in the 19, 1980s. And I think it's important for us to remember that because it, it wasn't always here, right? So as we talk about how do we solve ho- homelessness, we have to recognize that this has been largely a 40-year um, phenomenon here in this country. And that when we invested in housing, that homelessness didn't really exist. Um, and just in San Francisco alone, the federal government um, built close to 7,000 units of public housing for um, working class and middle class households. Since 1980, over the next 40 years, we've, the federal government has only built 1,000, which is, you know, a vast reduction in housing production here in this country. And it really began around 1976, um, actually a little with Nixon and Carter to a certain extent. But it was really Reagan that um, ran under this concept of small government, right? And part of small government meant um, cutting taxes um, for the wealthiest Americans. But when you cut those taxes, how do you pay for it, right? Because it used to fund something. And what one of the major departments that he cut was HUD. And over three presidential administrations, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, a Democrat, we cut HUD's budget by over 50%, right? And, um, and, and you start to see a vast slowdown in the production of affordable housing. And what Reagan said at the time was, let the market take care of housing, the rich, the middle class, and the working class and the poor. 40 years later, we've realized that this experiment really didn't work. The market did continue to house the rich and in many parts of the country, the middle class. Um, But they certainly were not housing the poor and the working class. And now in cities like San Francisco and New York, they're no longer housing the middle class anymore. And having done work on the affordable housing side, Um, I will tell you, it does not pencil out. It has to be subsidized. Simply the cost of land and construction and labor, it costs more than what people can pay back if you are low income. Housing has to be subsidized. It cannot be taken care of by the market. And it is a very different type of good than a lot of other things that we buy. So it should be heavily regulated. Um, I I really believe that. Um, And so, you know, again, like, we have to have this national conversation of how we tax Um, our our everyday citizens, and two, how we invest that back into our community and our nation to really actually truly lift the boat for everyone this way. And and I always tell people um, that this work is not altruistic. It is very selfish. I am safer when my neighbors can afford housing. I am safer when my neighbor's children can afford to go to college. It is actually a better community for all of us. and, And that's why we need to invest in it
1: when I was a little child growing up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, I think we probably moved in, well, we moved into um, a new development that was probably like the last wave of big HUD uh, projects. And it was a nice big apartment complex with lots of land and greenery on the edge of town. And it's still there and it still looks wonderful. And you're right. It's a there, at some point that we kind of, we collectively, the country, politically, um, but yes, more one party than the other, um, decided not only are we going to go on this line of believing that the market will take care of it, but we're going to ignore what is happening as a result of the decisions we've made. And I've, I too have done quite a bit in the affordable housing market and on the journalism side. And it's. I just know so many people who are just in despair. And they're like, we've abdicated our mm-hmm. responsibility. Um, and basically what they're saying to me is, this isn't going to change anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, so does that mean the tools that policymakers have, it's only on the local side, maybe the state side, if the federal government's not going to do anything? Um, and what are those tools? Is it, is it just the, you know, the percentage of affordable housing we can get out of a market de- development, or is there something else?
2: We yeah, can do? I didn't actually address your question. One of the reasons why I, I did support development and and I did support development of luxury and upper income housing is because that was the primary tool that I had to build affordable housing. Um, I I don't, you know, but like you'd mentioned, it's only one tool. There has to be a massive public investment in housing for us to truly house everyone. At this point, we're kind of just like skimping at the edges, right? But it still matters. And I have to say, you know, sometimes, actually my opponents criticize me for you know winning you know celebrating winning five additional units of public housing you know, not affordable housing but when those five households move in and i have met them when they get their key it is extraordinary, the transformation it means for that household. And um, I still remember a quote from one of our um, former executive directors that worked on homelessness for over 30 years here in San Francisco. And the Chronicle asked him, isn't this work so depressing? Because, you know, you're just like, you know, drops of drops of water in a bucket of, of you know, problems and issues. And his response was very simple. He said, um, I don't view my job as Um, Ending homelessness. I view my job as ending homelessness in the lives of individuals. And it's so true when an individual is housed, their life is transformed. And for them, it makes a big difference. And so um, I have spent a lot of work, um, you know, land use is one of the major kind of regulatory powers of the Board of Supervisors. And so how we use land, what can be on land, how much you can build on land, how high, how dense. Um, but as you do that, you're actually conveying value to land. So, you know, we zone this one area, residential or commercial or manufacturing or hotel uh, or parks, right? That, that kind of conveys value to your land and how high and how tall you can build con- days- conveys additional value. And part of how we've won, you know, record levels of affordable housing. In fact, when I was walking over here, I got to pass by one of the projects that I negotiated where we're doing 40% um, affordable housing on site for middle class households that make between 80 and $120,000 a year. Um, We were able to do that by conveying more value to the land. But ultimately, I don't think it's the solution. It's just one of the tools in the toolkit.
0: Yeah, and and uh, to add to that, I think that what makes it more difficult is, I mean, just hearing that you have impacted, you know, a certain amount of people's lives and getting them housing, and then yet just that one tool though gets used against you, especially when you're running for a high profile position. Mm-hmm. So so it you know it became a quote unquote contradiction of yours to support building and then you know ask these developers to set aside some housing, some affordable units, but yet not support a uh uh an idea to to build more sky-rising condos along you know our our transit system i think that that was um a bill that was supposedly you know that was was put out there sb 827 uh is where i'm going with that and so i was doing this reading where it was like your strategy of of have getting some affordable housing was used against you for the purpose of talking
2: about who's for this bill who's not for this bill? Well SP eight two seven is has a lot of layers to it and yeah. it's very difficult to talk about in a simplistic way. But my overall issue with that bill was twofold. One is that um, we were conveying value to land without asking developers to do more. So if I'm gonna add if I'm gonna give you an additional two stories to build, I'm basically giving you money, right? Because that's more two additional units, floors of units that you can now sell or rent, um, lease, et cetera. I want you to now share some of that value back with the community by building more affordable or middle-income housing than you originally would have. And again, um, you know, I was <laughs> criticized as, ex, you know, exacting, making exactions on developers. But as long as we're, deve- we're depending on the private market to build for everyone, well, you know, I'm going to expect you to build for everyone, right? That when, ex, when, again, the federal government went out of the business building housing, we decided that the market should take care of everybody. So from a policymaker's standpoint, you got to then, regulate that. Um, on on, the, on the, other, the other issue I had with um, SB 27 was not the goal of building more housing. I support that. What I would prefer is if um, each of the counties were given a goal, regardless of how much public transportation they had, because that's the other issue. They only required um, counties that actually invested in public transportation to build more, right, which I think is problematic, because There are counties like Solano and Napa and Contra Costa that aren't doing public transit or building. And we should not reward that behavior. Um, We should give everyone a goal and then say, "Um, you figure out where to build it. But if you don't meet that goal, then these things will start to happen. Right. Either we'll upzone or we'll start taking away state grants uh, because you're not meeting the larger overall public policy goals of the state of California. So I shared the goal of building more housing. I just disagreed with the tools that was within SBH 27. Complete different answer than what's written in,
0: the, you know, the I media, know. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm so glad to have this opportunity to really ask you about that. Um, I'm sorry, I'm hogging time. John. No, okay, okay, okay. It is your
1: name on the show, I mean, literally. <laughs> uh, I'm just the wingman here. So I, you know,
0: well, fast kick. forward to, to today, and um, it's interesting that you have uh, you know, a lot of enthusiasm for where we're headed on a, on a federal level with more women mm-hmm. elected in positions, but losing you and a couple other board of supervisors who were termed out really changed at least the uh the the gender profile mm-hmm. in elected leaders here in this city locally mm-hmm. so that was just some foreshadowing of what might be the end question when we talk about Jade Kim and the future of um, but how do you feel about yeah this this new makeup of of leaders uh, and and that's a big question we could start with at least you know Matt haney and, and uh, the new board of supervisor for district six and this conversation about about housing, do we feel confident that, you know, we'll
2: just kind of keep going? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm not the originator of all of these ideas and initiatives. I was really building upon the work that activists have been doing in the city for decades before I came into office. Um, And I was so lucky, actually, to be mentored by so many community leaders that um, have been doing this work for 40, 50 years in housing. And so, you know, I'm confident that Matt will continue to build upon the work that I've done and that so many others have done before I came into office. Um, about Congress, I'm incredibly excited about Congress, actually. This is the first time in my life that I've been excited about Congress. Um, and and I I've, I've said this a number of times, as much as I have been um, much, as much as I have really suffered every day under this presidential administration, I also recognize that Congress would not have the leadership that it does today if not for Trump. I really do think that they're interlinked, um, that all of these young people, women, people of color um, running for Congress um, was spurred by Trump's ascendance to the Trump to the White House. Uh, his You know, he's really a manifestation of of what we've been seeing in this country, again, over the last 40 years. And, you know, I I know I've been talking a little bit about history, um, but there was a time actually in this country in the mid-20th century that that people had more faith in government than (coughs) corporations to um, solve public problems. And, uh, you know, libertarians and, and conservatives, they actually did a ton of polling on this because they thought they were losing in the 50s and 60s. Um, more taxes, more regulations, more civil liberties. (laughs) Um, The civil rights movement was flourishing. And they started putting out tons of papers and investing in academia to talk about um, why we should distrust government, right? That was a purposeful um, kind of onslaught of information. It's not that government suddenly started to fail citizens, although I think it does, and I think it always has, but there's, there's both the positives and negatives. But there was a conservative um effort made to actually start putting that um into the policy dialogue and Reagan really came out with the as the first to really put that on a public platform. actually Clinton President Clinton also continued that. So less government, we need government to do less, we need the market to do more. And now 40 years later we're seeing where that has landed us greater inequity, less people housed. Um, you know, um, people not having access to affordable health care, all of these sorts of things. And, and now we're seeing kind of the swing back, I hope, you know, of us having this conversation on a national level. And so I'm, I'm hopeful, is, is what I'll say. And to kind of leave on a positive note, <laughs> um, I, I, I will say that I, you know, I continue to really believe in what we're doing. And I would not want to keep doing this if I didn't think that things couldn't get better. Um, And so I don't feel tired or even, um, you know, you know, by the work that we've done. Like, I want to keep doing it. Was that an unofficial way of saying
0: that you'll run for (laughs) a federal (laughs) position? I I think that was (laughs) your
1: announcement.
2: (laughs) Are we announcing it here on the show? I'm just saying that I'm going to (laughs) continue to stay engaged um, and involved. That I, I really do believe in in this institution more than ever. But I think it has to do right by the people. And we got to keep working to keep the agenda moving, keep the dialogue moving, and, and putting people in office that want to push um, this country. Well, Go ahead, John.
1: Sorry, well, and people who believe that government can actually do something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the old joke about Republicans is that uh, they talk a lot about how you know, government doesn't work, and then they get into office and they prove it. Um, LAUGHTER but, but I mean you, you I'm
2: going to use that joke. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it's yours. Um but I mean we we've really kind of seen this on the staying on the federal level with um you know Congress in control of the, under the Republicans for 8 years. I forget how many years they had total control under uh, both houses but couldn't get stuff done. Give them a Republican president, they couldn't pass stuff. Mm-hmm. Um Nancy Pelosi gets in and suddenly they're doing stuff because a-ish, she knows what she's doing. Um, just a personal view. Um, the Commonwealth Club does not take stands on these things. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so it, it there there's a stance there that that Democrats and, and and even some Republicans, I suspect, will be able to take once they are able to get out of that mindset that has been, you know, as you said, through Republican and Democratic uh, administrations, of government is not the solution, it is the problem. I think Reagan said some sort of formulation Mm -hmm. of that. Um, So you may not be announcing you're running for office, but you are announcing you're an optimist.
2: Well, um, I actually like to, uh, Cornel West actually has this quote um, about optimists and prisoners of hope. And he talked about how um, optimists look at the evidence in the world around them and believe that things are going to get better. And he said, I'm not an optimist. He's like, but I remain a prisoner of hope, which is that a prisoner of hope looks at the evidence surrounding them and doesn't think that things are going to get better, but are just committed to wanting to change the evidence around them. And, and so I, I, I mean, I think that that's kind of the biggest takeaway for me is how do you continue to carry on hope? And, uh, you know, what I'll say is that we, we talk a lot about resistance, you know, post-Trump yeah. But actually, what I've learned is it's persistence, it's resilience that keeps us, you know, in the battle, right? And, and that's what gives me hope. And here in San Francisco, it's seeing people lose and get up again the next day to keep fighting. Like, that gives me hope. And as long as we have individuals that are willing to continue to do that, we have a chance, Right. That, that's how we continue on. The one last plug I'll make, by the way, because we talked about federal government, is that we continue to need people to run for office at the local and state level. And, and actually, most of the things that we really care about on a daily basis um, get decided at the local and state level. In fact, because Congress has been in gridlock for the last mm-hmm. decade or longer, yeah. um, you know, one example I'll give is, you know, Sacramento passes three to, two to three times as many bills as Washington, D.C. on any given year. And when we think about a lot of the issues that we care about, public education, criminal justice reform, sentencing reform, because actually most inmates are in state prison, not federal prison, right. um, those decisions and, and also access to abortion um, and women's women's right to choose, like that that's being regulated at the state level. Um, and if we don't win back more of the state houses, um, we'll never win back Congress because the state houses also determined the redistricting lines, <laughs> which really determine which parties win, which seats in Congress. So and,
1: and voter suppression and, and, and voters. You know.
2: All of that is happening at the state and local level. So um, the one thing I really push, especially liberal progressive voters, is to invest more time um, in looking at the local and state races as much as we do with Congress and the White House. I didn't mean to. To move the needle to the point that this is going to be the end of
0: our conversation. But I did, I did want to let you know, our audience has a chance to ask Jane questions. That's where I was headed. Um, But you know what, what I want to say to you is you you being termed out and uh, not locally, at least here in San Francisco, I did ask myself who will be the voice for the the young liberal, uh, radical progressives that have really, I think elevated and, and have pushed and even forced moderates to think differently mm-hmm. in our own city and, and mm-hmm. in a crowded town of progressives. Um, so, so I, 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 just want to, I know it's not, I, n- I never meant to, I didn't ever think that Jane was going to go on vacation and never come back.
2: Um, I am going on vacation, but <laughs> But you're coming back. But I will come back. Because you're a voice
0: for us, and we're, you know, a growing generation in the city. And, and to your point, probably will start running for positions. Um, so, questions from the audience. Lucky Jane. We've got a roving mic. And just speak into it, because it is being recorded. Sandy.
1: Hi, Jane. Um, uh, my name is uh, Sandy Manning. Um, I used to live in uh, District 6. Um, right now, I'm District 7. Um, you spoke about housing. I love my new place over in uh, Ingleside Heights. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful. Uh, my question to you—it's kind of a kind of like a little personal. When are you going to go on tour with your band? In- <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we were saving that for last. I don't think anyone wants me to go on tour. <laughs> now we do. Yeah. We yeah. didn't My know band. this before, but James, there James there please are please. old VHS recordings oh. of our band playing at uh, at Brainwash.
0: This was not an exit interview. This is actually a recruitment for for Jane <laughs> to start if up anyone a band.
2: Wants to digitize the VHS. <laughs> you there. can then decide if you want me to tour. <laughs> Question
3: for Jane. Hi, Jane. Uh, My question is this. As a kind of poor white man, privilege, uh, I was at a dinner party last night, and they all know that I was a Bernie supporter, and I supported you. Uh, But uh, the question really was, oh, we have all these women running. Which one uh do you like and i said well tulsi but the rest i really have questions about and they said oh that's you're just a white male you really don't want a woman how do i combat that you know i want to look at their platform their record uh you know their stances what they're really going to push for because i happened to ask nancy pelosi at one of her town halls single payer is the solution why won't you support it? And she told me, young man, I had a hat on, so she didn't think I
2: was older, I guess. You are a young man.
3: <laughs> so, wow, yeah. But she said, it's a government takeover. And we all know that's out now out lies. So how do you combat that? It can't be gender, even though I'm absolutely happy with some of the stuff going on in Congress now. It can't be gender. It can't be the color of the person's skin. It can't be just that. How do we push people to look a little deeper.
2: I think that this is a very difficult conversation in our country today. And I've been seeing it a lot on social media. Um, As liberals and as progressives, we rightly so talk a lot about race, gender, sexuality, um, and kind of multiple intersections. We should be having that conversation. Um, And we have to also have a conversation about our values and our priorities and how they support people of color, women, um, LGBTQ folks. So I think they both have to happen at the same time. Um, I think what's problematic is when you isolate the two conversations from each other. And, and it happens a lot in liberal circles. It doesn't happen in Republican circles because they don't care about diversity. So they're like, they're, they're, they're ch- their choice is very simple. Do you represent my values or not, right? Because they don't have to deal with kind of multiple layers of conversation. I think it's great that we're having a more complicated conversation about this. Um, what I would say, and and I'll say this about reading when I talked about reading the New York Times the other day and reading five articles in a row with women leaders in the headlines is that I didn't agree with every woman, um, in the headline, but it was refreshing to me to disagree with a woman and not a man. (laughs) I will say that. Um, but in endorsements, I have endorsed straight white men over women, people of color, um, Because they represented my values better, and I thought they would serve the communities that I come from and that I represent better. Um, And so what I would like to see is is us supporting more people running for office, right? I I think there's one question of how we support more women, people of color, LGBTQ folks to run for office. Um, There's a very different conversation that we need to have about who we end up endorsing and voting, right for so I don't have a simple answer for you but I just think that it's a good dialogue that we're having but one does not trump the other it has to happen together
1: Jane out of of local office is 2020 a possibility for you
2: well I guess with 20 candidates that are possibly jumping in (laughs) it's it's possible but I I will just come out now and say I'm not running for president (laughs) in 2020 I know
4: Hi, Jane. How are you? Hi. I hope Lord you recognize Holy. the T-shirt.
2: Yes, I know. I was so impressed that you and Ivy both
4: Decided to bring you back. Oh, you
2: did too, and Ivy? Yeah. Hi, I thought it was you. And you wore the same ones.
4: Oh, and we wore the same ones. Um, yeah. Just in case, from her Super That's when I got to know you after the school boards. Uh, then, that's when it part of you. My um, question, Miss Forty is a new 30. Remember when you did that at the edge and told my little crowded fundraiser? Is, um, now that you're no longer in our District 6, which I now live in over at TNDC property, a um, lot's been written, what's going on in the homeless lately. And what Matt has been like really angrily correctly about is when we're having these terrible storms, um, there's like only 20 mats to put mm-hmm. people in. Mm-hmm. Um, and now he's trying to, I guess, you know, stir a hornet's nest as he should to get people out of inclement uh, conditions. Um, I'm kind of tying this all together because I learned more about what's working in my neighborhood where I'm at in regards to the hot team. Mm. Um, Could you elaborate a little bit more if you were advising, you know, Matt or anybody in that (laughs) office or the board of supervisors that the importance of the hot team and how I believe personally and some of my neighbors, it should be expanded because it is a hand in hand approach to this whole uh, homeless um, mental illness uh, problem we have. And I'll just add one other thing just to be on record here. Um, I have seen increased uh, better improvement at eighth and Mission, which is my intersection more or less. Except on weekends, it mm. seems like, oh, okay, mm. you know it's nine to five, and no one's really here. Trust there are people here, mm. um, so I would just love that to for us, the neighbors who live down are not being ignored during the weekends and not just when it's highly visible when there's a convention in town and thank you Thanks. Uh,
2: so the What I will say about the expansion of the hot team that happened while I served on the board of supervisors, I think an important expansion of the hot team was actually the inclusion of a mental health professional in in the teams, because um, homelessness isn't just an economic issue. Um, Wealth and income inequity disparities played a big role um, in the the growth of homelessness um, in cities across the country. Um, But because we've been struggling with homelessness for now 40 years, it's become a public health issue. And people are incredibly sick on our streets. In fact, if any of us were living on the streets, we would become very sick. And so we have to have nurses and doctors and um, mental health practitioners um, out um, on the field um, as well as just kind of you know, outreach officers um, because it's actually more challenging to get people into shelter now um, without that additional support. So
3: um, I wanted to say thank you for your many years of service, um, specifically on your focus around transportation and traffic violence, um, but just in general, all the service that you've given to the city. But I kind of um, living in San Francisco; it's it's such a such a blue city. We we love politics. It's almost like a spectator sport uh, for many people here. And I'm just wondering, um, you know, in terms of how we approach our democracy as a whole and getting people invested in participating in their civic roles, what would you encourage people to do to really be engaged? Because obviously not everyone can run for office or has mm-hmm. the capability. What, what is the call to action so that we don't end up continuing to have people that don't represent our values in positions of power?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, f- the first thing I'll say is that I think we focus too much on just who runs for office. My team was so, as you know, my team was so important in the work that we were doing, both in helping to set the agenda and then getting it done and implementing it. Um, We need good people at every single level of government. And part of the reason why I hired an all women of color staff, who, by the way, weren't just women of color. They all came from the community. They had all been organizing, provided services in the neighborhoods that I was representing before they before they came into City Hall. So it's both, right? It's the diversity, the values, and the experience. Um, we need good people at every single level. Um, and frankly, that diversity um, doesn't exist below the surface of who runs for office. If you look at political consultants, largely straight white men, and they have they wield huge power, actually, in who gets to run and how those campaigns are run. Um, we need... We, we, need, we need folks at every single level, running campaigns, serving, um, being public policy makers, um, running departments and agencies, um, you know, in the bureaucracy, but also in, in the private sector as well. Um, but what I would say is that I, I just think it's so important for people to be civically engaged, as you mentioned, and I don't, I don't know how to encourage people to do that, but it made such a difference for me, um, to be able to push very progressive policies if there was, of course, a groundswell of support, because that was what got my colleagues on board to support these policies as well. And so I, I would say that actually the little things that people could do, whether it was coming to public comment, even writing emails, which you know might be annoying, but they actually do show electeds that, we, um, that this is an issue that people um, understand and are going to hold you accountable to. Right, All of those things, I think, um, really matter. And I think a big reason why we were able to push Vision Zero and more protected bike lanes and pedestrian safety improvements was not because a couple of elected leaders said that this was a priority for the city, but because there was a groundswell of movements of resident leaders and advocates that came together to fight for this.
1: Hi. Um, Hi. Thanks, as I think everyone has been saying here, uh, for being such an inspiration and for also taking a stand on some issues that maybe were difficult, uh, uh issues to, to be kind of the flag carrier for off, pretty often. Um, my question is about Prop C, um, and mm-hmm. kind of the funding that we now have available to mm-hmm. focus on homelessness. Mm-hmm. What do you see as some of the priorities for public monies when they do become available like that, given mm-hmm. the current environment, where are the opportunities?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you, San Francisco for voting for two Prop C's last year. Um, that are under litigation. Um, I talked about Free Community College and Free City College, but um, I didn't mention that um, last June we also passed a $140 million revenue measure to make child care and early childhood education affordable to all families in San Francisco. Yeah. And that is incredibly exciting, and I think that's going to be a game changer too. Um, two, though, was um, the Prop C that passed in November, um, which is about $300 million dedicated to homelessness. Uh, housing is the obvious answer. we got to house people first. Um, um, but because um, it takes a while to acquire and to produce housing, um, I, I do think we have to invest in shelter beds. It's not popular because they're expensive, A, and they're temporary solutions. Um, housing is, of course, a permanent solution, and that should be where we prioritize the funding. We have to get people off the streets, um, and we have to provide health care um, to those folks that are in shelter, and so one of the things that I fought for um, when I was on the board of supervisor was uh, a medical respite shelter. So I um, I was challenged by the Coalition for Homeless Advocates um, when I first joined the board to spend a night in one of our homeless shelters, and so I actually took that took on that challenge, and my staff decided that I would do it the first night I was acting mayor of San Francisco. Oh yeah, yep. So my first night as acting mayor, um, I went through the shelter reservation system and I stayed, um, I got I got assigned to next door shelter in my district and I stayed there for the night. And it is, of course, so different from a site visit. Um, There's so many things that you learn when you spend 14 hours um, in a space than when you just visit for an hour. Um, and, and you know, a couple of observations I, I made. One is that people are far older and far sicker than I realized, because actually young people do have options. Um, they, you know, they just... What, for whatever reason they can sleep on a couch you know there's they're just different things that are happening so they're far older and far sicker than i realize, and they're not actually getting the care that they need and um at those shelters. And in fact, we have them run around during the daytime to try to access all these housing counselors and medical appointments and, you know, like food and meals. Um, And then we lock people up essentially for 12, 14 hours, because you're really not allowed to leave some of the shelters at night, you lose your bed if you do. And we provide zero services um, during that time. And so I fought to get full time nurses in all of our shelters. And actually, two years later, we now Um, We now have nurses at all of our single adult shelters, and I fought to expand a shelter that was staffed not by minimum wage workers, but staffed by nurses, clinicians, and psychologists, and we have to greatly um, expand on that.
3: Well, thanks for coming to speak with us. Um,
2: Nice to see you again.
3: Likewise. Likewise. Uh, Well, first of all, thanks for bringing up the state and local issues. We have several people here from the Sister District Project. So if anybody would like to engage on the front that you mentioned, it's a great segue for everybody. But I was hoping, um, could you elaborate more on the approach that you see as being productive and effective on the housing issue. You've talked a lot about what we shouldn't do in terms of you know, a value proposition, um, and in terms of what you've uh, opposed. What do you see as the productive vision moving forward on that front? And could you describe your approach to working with a lot of different stakeholders with whom you disagree?
2: I can't say that I've always done this well, um, but ideally with time, you really invest in the stakeholder process. Um, and you bring as many people into the room as you can. And you have these conversations and debates. And everyone is not going to come out agreeing um, when you walk out of the room. And it takes time. But you got to really respect the, the feedback and the opinion that's coming in. And But it's true. As a policymaker, you have to start making calls, right, in terms of what ultimately gets proposed and voted on. Um, but I do think that listening and engaging in community process is incredibly important. Um, we talk a lot about cutting community process because it does slow things down. Um, and I get that. Like, I understand that urge. Um, and there are times that I feel impatient and I want to do less um, outreach and dialogue and just go straight to the solution. But what I've learned actually over time is that those solutions are more um, ephemeral when we do it that way. They, they are more meaningful. They last longer they're built more strongly when you actually engage in robust stakeholder conversations where people actually felt heard. They don't have to get their way, but they have to feel heard and included um, in that process. And I ultimately think that that is generally more successful. But it is true. I've spent a lot of time disagreeing, of course, with folks folks disagreeing <laughs> with me in turn. And I think that's a very important part um, of the public discourse. Um, but You know, this is not actually part of your question. I think, Michelle, you asked a little bit about this. I do think we have to think a lot about how we treat our elected officials, though. I'm not saying that we're special, that you got to treat us with kid gloves. But I have a lot of trouble encouraging women and people of color to run for office. And I think it is in large part because of how they see the media and constituents treat um, elected officials. And I'm not saying that you got to agree with them, or you got to be, you know, any of those things. But I, I do think that there's a level of respect that we need to all engage in on a greater level, because we will have better leaders and better representatives, I think, when when we do so. So I, I you know, I think that that's, you know, important thing for us to talk about as well. Um, back to kind of housing, and, and what I'd like to see happen. Um, well, I would like to go back to a um, investing in housing again, where the federal and state government actually was in the business of building housing. Because as I mentioned earlier, um, some housing just has to be subsidized. It, the market will just never be able to take care of um, wide brackets of, of folks. Um, and and it, and actually housing costs too much. The hard cost of housing is too much um, for those that are low income, working class, and even now in many cities, middle class, right? So that's that's part of what we have to do. And I think, you know, for for folks that read Evicted, which came out um, I think two years ago, you know, there's, there's an an interesting proposition, which is that um, you know we should rethink housing like we think of food stamps, right? That it just takes income qualification to get a housing subsidy, right? Um, and I, there's complicated conversation because it does benefit the private market when you do rent subsidies versus building housing. So we got to do all of it. We got to build more housing. We got to do more rent subsidies. But it is what has allowed Sandy, for example, um, who for many years was a really important um, uh, re- res- resident leader in the Tenderloin, lived in our, uh, um, one of our hotels in the Tenderloin to move up into what we call step-up housing and now live in Ingleside Heights. Um, But thank you, Sandy, for still coming back to the Tenderloin on a regular basis and continue to organize and lead um, in the neighborhood, which is sorely needed. But I I think that it has to be a multi-pronged approach. And we have to invest in transportation. Transportation and housing are are twin sisters. We can't just do one without the other. We have to build a regional transportation system that connects housing and jobs as well. We're out
0: of time, so I'm going to ask the last question question comments and again i echo you know i think everybody's feelings here and we thank you so much for your service and everything that you've brought to the table and putting yourself out there so many times and building what i truly believe is moving forward uh, at least a group of those who will continue to do the work whether you're elected or not um so you know you ran for state senator and i witnessed the the uh, horrible characterization of you as, as a woman i mean it was just a it made me feel as a voter like and a queer LGBTQ person in San Francisco really bad because then I felt divided between, you know, standing next to the the gay guy. We need we need gay people in office. Yes, we do that and need that too. And then mm-hmm. it was like, no, but we need women, you know, more women. And, and it, it, if we're really following the issues, my heart was as a voter, and I'm just talking about myself only, not the club, just myself, um, you know, with you. And then fast forward to you running as— As mayor and uh, that even got more complicated by the time the mayoral race finished, as a voter who's queer middle class working in San Francisco, who's a woman who's of color. I felt horrible about myself. I was depressed. Every single identity of mine, you know, I just was like, but there's an argument, every single identity. And it got to a place where it's like, but wait a minute, we're such a beautiful city filled with intellectuals, people who volunteer, people who are active, and we oftentimes actually really need to come to the table and work together. So that was a really long way of saying, like, I follow you, that more women, more people of color need to to run. But it's so scary, especially when you go up against privilege and wealth, even though those People who are elected or who have the power and are privileged and are wealthy are members of the same club, same uh, political you know party, and even the same identity group, uh, if mm-hmm. you will. And if you could leave us with some some words of the, of you know using the fear, also the hope, um, at the same time you know just uh, what, whatever those words are that come to you where you just got to do it because despite it all, you just got to do it. And then how would you leave us with the advice to really pull all of our progressive communities together rather than tear ourselves down?
2: Mm, that's a lot of questions in one. <laughs> yeah. I feel in, like, in ten uh, words know, or fewer. You know,
0: <laughs> no, I mean, you know, honestly, you've been, again, you've been through a lot and from uh, on the sidelines, you've been able to see, and it's so hurtful. It's, it's actually really hurtful, and I, I think we all want to come out of all of this alive, um, and then we're going to miss you here in San Francisco, but we're also going to be rooting for you and you know, running for Congress or something like that, right?
2: Well, I'm not leaving San Francisco, so you don't have to miss me. <laughs> As an elected official. As an elected official. Uh, uh, well, a couple of things that I'll say. So you brought up the state Senate race a couple of times, and you know, it was the first time that I got to experience millions of dollars spent against me and my name, and my reputation, and my story, and what I believe in, and who I am. And I don't think anyone can prepare you for that experience. I can, you can talk about it, you can say it, but experiencing it is very different from hearing about it. And um, my opponent spent $6.75 million in that, state, uh, in that state senate race. And most of it was spent um, attacking me. Because if you look at the committees that were set up, they were committees against Jane Kim, And it's hard. I'm not going to lie and say that it wasn't easy. Uh, It was incredibly hard. And it still continues to be something that I struggle with. Um, And what I've come out of that experience with, I will say, is that I have learned that, you know, my, my story is only my own. And there are days that I felt like my story wasn't, um, that I was lost, that other people were defining who I was. Um, But over time, you, you've You know, through resilience, you realize that no, this story is only mine, and millions of dollars can't take that away from me. So that's part of the growth, I think, for going through this process. Um, But you're right, it is more complicated. In this mayor's race last year, the four major candidates um, were women, women of color, LGBT, right? In fact, I think the national headline that I kept reading was just kind of, you know, bewilderment uh, that in San Francisco, not a single one of the top. Four candidates was a straight white male. That was really the headline in New York and D.C. It wasn't what we stood for. It wasn't our ideas. Um, so that's why I think that race, gender, and sexuality has to continue being a part of the conversation. But it's only one layer of it. What do you stand for, mm. right? What What do you stand for, and who are you representing, and who's supporting you? Like, where is your money coming from? Where is your support coming from, and how are you going to support women and people of color and LGBTQ folks? Right. So, yes, we want more representation. Superficial representation is important. Um, And and I I never want to kind of diminish the significance of that. And, um, you know, one person who I have tremendous respect and admiration for, but didn't always represent my politics as President Barack Obama. And I think that it will take us generations to actually understand the impact of what it meant, especially for young people to grow up with an African-American president. Right. we will We will see the impact of that over time. Um, there are young people that did not know a non-black president actually, right, and what that meant in their life. So I don't want to discount or diminish the significance of that. And I think we have to ask, you know, how are you working to uplift those communities as well, Right? So how is your leadership and representation actually going to uplift communities of color and women and LGBTQ folks? So, so representation is just one piece. What are your values and your priorities? What do you stand for as the other? So um, I don't think that second piece of the conversation happens enough. Um, and that's what I'd like to see us talk a lot more about um, is, is the policies that we're going to push for when we get elected and who we're going to bring to the table with us. Right. Because, again, as I said, it's not the elected official, him or herself, that is going to be doing the vast majority of the work. It's the team that they're bringing in with them. So don't just look, ever look at the candidate. Look at who is on their team, too, because that um, is going to really show what the kind of work and leadership that you're going to see from that office. Jane Kim, thank you so much thank for, you, Michelle. So thank you, John. for being here
0: at Commonwealth Club. Thanks for joining us for the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. We're here every Thursday live at the Commonwealth Club, and you can listen to past shows at
1: commonwealthclub.org slash MMS.